Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. Welcome to the third episode of our podcast. It's really exciting because it's the first, like, regular episode as compared to the pilot, which we had to split in two and which was really complicated. Um, It's also the first regular episode, air quotes, of the show in terms of format, which is exciting. And before we dive into the episode, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to everyone who downloaded when we dropped the first few episodes. We got over 100 downloads in about 48 hours of being on iTunes. We're so grateful to all of you. And we do this for you because we like the show and we like talking about TV. And I love going onto Twitter and seeing all of your comments and talking with you about the things that you liked and saying what you agreed and disagreed with. I just really like it. Thanks so much for being a part of this with us. Yes, and thank you. I know uh, we interacted with some people who were like, thanks for keeping the fandom alive, but we don't keep the fandom alive. You do. And now we just uh, use the show to find each other. So please come talk to us more. We love you. So now we have an idea of what uh, Warehouse 13 looks like, and we have a great episode with a lot of awesome things to talk about. So where should we begin? This week, we are discussing episode two of season one, titled Resonance. It is written by David Simpkins, and the summary of the show is this. Pete and Micah head to Chicago to find an artifact being used to help rob banks. Artie traces the source of an attempted hack into the warehouse's computers. And Micah's father's upcoming retirement brings up unpleasant childhood memories. This summary, for those interested in different styles of summaries, is the ABC method. So I gave one sentence to the three major plots that the episode focuses on. So nice, easy. Yeah. It's like... See uh, how much shorter it is this time, guys? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Okay. We begin at the bank. Yes. a teller who has very fluffy hair. So fluffy. Oh my god, I wrote that too. It was just big hair. Continue. And then, you know, the funny thing is that there is a client at the bank, and his name is Mr. Jarvis. He's on the phone, and he's like, oh, Laura, did you do something different with your hair? And then she's like, yeah, I colored it. (laughs) And I'm like, Laura, that's not what you did differently with your hair today. (laughs) No, the color's new. The style is always... (laughs) The style, listen, I'm sure that that actress just got whatever style that the makeup team put on her, (laughs) but it wasn't my favorite choice, and it wasn't time period appropriate, even for 2009. But with that said, we begin with Laura, the teller at the bank with Mr. Jarvis, and then we get a really, like, slow-mo, flash, scary, guys come in all in black for a bank robbery, and then a really scary sound plays and, and we get this, you know, bank robbery scene. And they zoom in on a phone for a long time so you know it's important. They do. So I was actually going to ask because the zoom in on the phone is a little a little cheesy. But I was okay with the slow-mo wacky bank robbery. Like, it worked for me. Did it work for you? I think it worked for me on a lot of levels because... I mean, I think good slow-mo serves a function, and the slow-mo here was a really interesting misdirect. Because when you slow something down visually, it's like you're saying, pay attention to what you see. 
but the important thing wasn't anything that we saw, which I thought was a really interesting choice. Oh, I like that. And see, maybe that's that's my subconscious too, because it would have been cheesy if they slow-mo zoomed in on, you know, a visual artifact. But although there is a physical object that makes the sound, it's really about the sound itself. And I think it is a pretty brief, uh, what's the word, like teaser with this bank robbery? Cold open? It's a good first scene. It's a good opening scene. The teaser, uh, we did wonder in the last episode if we would have a true teaser or cold open in that way. I guess it's a cold open in that it opens from black, so it's a cold open. Mm -hmm. But the teaser and act one are shoved together. So the teaser technically ends when you see the title card of the show, when you see Warehouse 13. So after the bank robbery, we get Pete playing ping pong with a really cool mirror. We actually get something else first that I noted. I think the warehouse is semi-sentient. Oh, yeah. Because I think that it was as hostile to Micah when she showed up as she was to it. But if you (laughs) notice, she's getting really good reception right outside the warehouse these days. I think it's like, fine, I'll let you take your phone call. Oh my gosh, I love it. And that's something I was actually tracing as well. We could view this two different ways. One is that Micah is outside of the warehouse or Micah's on her, her cell phone, not with Dickinson this time, but still she's not fully immersed in the world of the warehouse. Whereas Pete in this episode is totally immersed in the world of the warehouse because then you see him and we know because of the show that it's an artifact, it's a magic mirror that's allowing him to play ping pong with himself. That was so cool. And here's the thing, is that this, in my opinion, this season is written really well. And Jill, maybe you know, like, in a first season especially, they might sit down and plan things out really carefully. I don't know, but I get that feeling because this mirror shows up again in a future episode and becomes, like, a, a plot... Uh, so they have shown you that it exists before, way before that episode ever happened. So that, to me, is really smart writing. Yeah, I don't know if the episode where it comes up is planned or not, but I do know that it shows that the writers pay attention to what they've done, which is a really underrated part of serial writing. Yeah. People like to talk about planning ahead a lot, but it's really important to keep track of where you've been because that way you're paying attention to what people respond to and what people really liked. And if people, when this first came out, are responding as well to the ping pong table as I am now, that was a good thing to notice. Right. So there's the ping pong table, which could go either way. But the thing that is definitely planned is the computers are acting up. Artie has a B-plot of trying to figure out who has hacked him and... We are literally two episodes away from learning the answer to that question. So we have a driving question that's going to keep viewers wanting to find out more about what's happening. Yeah, and Lena was in the warehouse, which I enjoyed because she's part of the team. She is. In a a different capacity than, you know, an agent would be. But she is a part of the team, and so I like that she's not, like, shut out. Definitely. Oh, sorry, I did make a note. 
First of all, the writing in this episode is really on point. The voice is really consistent, and I had a lot more laugh-out-loud moments than I did with the first episode, which isn't a knock to the writing of the first episode, but we, we, we did have our notes about the inconsistent style. My first moment where I laughed out loud was Lena says, your aura looks like hell, and he just goes, stop looking at it. <laughs> right? Which is great, but also, like, I felt it was really playful. Like, he wasn't sleeping, but probably because he was excited. And I noticed he's wearing less layers this episode. He seems happier. I think he's just getting used to being around people again. And that made me... I I just see growth in Artie and needed to point it out. Oh, no, I agree. I think it's obvious that Artie likes Pete and Micah and he likes having people there. Um, And then they go outside... Uh, or Pete comes outside where Micah is, and then it's like, heads up, the football's coming. <laughs> and we get my first laugh out loud moment, which is, what is it with men and their balls? <laughs> and here's what I, like, that is not a joke that I would usually think is funny. But what my feeling on this of uh, being funny is, is that Micah put up with a lot of those sort of misogynistic jokes last time. And what she, especially as like a woman in a very masculine career of being a secret service agent and all of this, she's showing that she can shoot it right back. You know, like if they're going to say shove it up your magenta, she's going to say, what is it with you and your balls? You know, (laughs) like it's just it's it doesn't feel offensive so much as playful in this moment. And it also helps that she and Pete have a better relationship now. Yeah, and it's like a specific antagonist. Like, there was no antagonist magenta, but the ball just comes out of nowhere and hits people like a jerk. (laughs) Right, so it's actually like a thing related to a ball has happened. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which is funny. So this is where they get their orders. Artie reveals that there is a bank in Chicago with a suspicious robbery, and pretty quickly, um, we're launched into, all right, that's the, that's the conflict of this episode. We're going to Chicago. And also, I want to note the C-plot that's a Bruin of Micah's dad's retirement party. We hear her on the phone, and we hear her say, call it a retirement party all you want. Dad's never letting go of the bookstore. Yes, a theme of the episode, which I, I like when a C-plot ties in really thematically. I really do, too. So they go to Chicago, and I just wrote, they both look so cool. I wrote that Micah is especially jumpy in this episode. You are right. Micah is really jumpy, but I thought, uh, and you could have a different reading, I thought Micah was jumpy to show just how loud the echo is, not for as much of a personal reason, although thematically it could be a personal reason. Um, I do believe that it's both. I think you're 100% right. And then I also think that there is a specific reason later. Now that we're in the bank, I think that it's time to safely say that Miranda and I have a shared actor's spotlight. And uh, I believe many viewers of the show know who we're talking about. Trisha Helfer! Yes, Trisha Helfer. (laughs) She's so great. No, it's so great. Like... Okay, so she is amazing. Um, Most people rightfully recognize her from the iconic and beautiful show, Battlestar Galactica. Tell us how you really feel. I mean, I feel real good about it is how I feel. (laughs) Um, But she actually, she had a few film roles 
and stuff before then, but not much. I mean, really where she got her start is on the Battlestar Galactica miniseries. I mean, where she got her start in terms of acting. She was a Canadian model, but she became known for her work as the Cylon, number six, in Battlestar Galactica, which was a miniseries turned into a reboot of an 80s uh, sci-fi series, but that definitely holds its own and is gorgeous. She was initially cast because she looked like she could be a robotic, perfect human. She was gorgeous and she got people to go under her spell, but over the course of the series and even within the first episode of the miniseries, you really see the gorgeous range and just pure talent that she has. And that sort of propelled her into becoming a science fiction icon. She's gone on to guest star and star in a number of other shows. She was in an episode of one of my favorite shows, Chuck. She is obviously in the Warehouse 13. She goes on to be in Human Target. She was in also non-sci-fi shows like Lie to Me. She goes into mainstream shows like Two and a Half Men and The Firm and Criminal Minds. But she always comes back to sci-fi. She actually has a special and I believe limited event podcast that is happening right now for, I believe, the 15th anniversary of Battlestar Galactica. For those interested, I I feel the need to plug because she is our spotlight and she's great. She's watching the original miniseries that relaunched the franchise, and then I believe she's going all the way through season one, and I think they said that other people from the show are coming back to be on it, so that is sponsored by Sci-Fi, unlike us, but but welcome us if you would like Sci-Fi. So yes, so that is our actor spotlight of the great Trisha Helfer. Thank you. That was excellent. And I, yeah, I love Trisha Helfer. I think she rocks this. It's not just Trisha Helfer, but it's like everyone, maybe because they're, everyone looks good in cold weather clothes and they're in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Like Micah's in a really nice coat. Pete is in like his suit and a nice coat. You know, and then Trisha Helfer is in, like, a really powerful skirt, suit, coat. Like, everyone just looks like proper FBI Secret Service. Like, they are doing something really cool with the bank robbery. And then my next note with where we're going next is that Dickinson is still a character. Yes! Which is kind of funny because, small spoiler, he is not a character forever. But this time, instead of being, like, not false conflict, but just kind of the pull back to the old world, which you kind of need when you're transitioning to a new job and just like a part of starting a new series. But he is now still interested in Warehouse 13 because Artie is gonna come and and they're gonna have this big moment Uh, later it's more that Artie comes to Dickinson but initially Dickinson and Peter talking on the phone and they're they're actually both just kind of working a case right yeah you're definitely right and I also like not gonna get in too much right now because we're gonna talk about it a bit more later but he serves more of a function than just as a tie to Pete and Micah but also into the growth of Artie as a character really early on which I really like yes but I, do, I did have one note right about Trisha Helfer and like the first time we see her and stuff in terms of Pete. <laughs> Pete goes, nice leg, which I thought was funny because that's very consistent 
with the first episode, but in not a jerk way. Like, the first shot that we see of his love interest, Casey, in the first episode uh, is her legs, and she's very huh. blonde. So it's like, oh my god, a leggy blonde walks in. Like, of course. Of course. And I like that Micah is, like, playfully annoyed with him, but not, like, remotely threatened. Yes. And I agree with the the response that Micah has, because... To me, same going back to the men and their balls thing, it's like Pete is her annoying little brother. And let me just throw this in there because I don't think we actually have said it yet. I, in my notes, called her Trisha Helfer throughout. Oh, me too. But her name is Bonnie Belsky. Yeah, her name is Agent <laughs> Belsky. So if we keep doing that, it's just because we love Trisha Helfer. But Agent Belsky is the name of the character. Yes. Obviously, yeah. I'll give credit to the writers because that's, that's an incredibly Chicago last name. Is it? I was wondering, I, well, I am not from Chicago. The skis. Okay. I was actually, this is English major, obviously, thinking that Belsky uh, has the word bell in it, and this is an episode about music, ah. and I was like, ooh, it's like a, but that could just totally be me overreading. I don't know. I feel like anything is possible. Oh, yeah. One last note. Yep. No way does an actual FBI detective walk around in heels. <laughs> like, Micah was in heels, like, because she was at a, like, black tie event with the president in the first episode. Well, I was gonna say, as if Trisha Helfer needs heels, right? <laughs> like, she she looks beautiful in them, but she doesn't need them, you know? Yes, and then uh, Pete says, I'm in love, as she walks away, and she, Micah just hits him. And then we have the end of the teaser and the first set of opening credits, which I'm real excited about. We see ancient art. We see close-ups of fairy tales, boxes of unknowable things. We see carvings and maps and pictures. And a really sweet shout-out to P.T. Farnsworth. There is a something with an advertisement. It says, the future is here, an interview with P.T. Farnsworth. I didn't pause it to read those things, but that's amazing. Yes, and there is um, a picture of Tesla and then a close-up of the gun. So they're really honoring the actual scientists behind the artifacts that they use a lot, which I thought was really sweet. Yes, and that music, the Warehouse 13 music, is an original composition for the show. And a little bit later, we're going to talk about that. Yes, so when we get back from commercial, uh, we're in Washington, D.C., and we are in Dickinson's office, and we intercut between Dickinson's office and the coffee shop and Dickinson and Pete are on the phone basically Dickinson's helping them get on the case after Trisha Helfer's character is just like no go away (laughs) and they're like oh well how'd you get her boss to let you in and he goes oh I forgave like gambling debt and he's like you never did that for me which I love implies that Pete used to like gamble and like play cards with his boss um and he goes you never asked so <laughs> i like that i like that whole dynamic that was really sweet well dickinson has more characterization here right he's not just the boss that's gonna get them in trouble he's like a person and i like this that if we take seriously that pete worked in dc for a long time yeah of course he was buddies with his boss well he's on the phone we also have micah on the phone with her mom again for another guilt trip and she says something really sad she says Dad won't miss me. When I was there, he didn't even know I was there. And there's a really great moment immediately after that 
with Pete and Micah when they both sort of get off the phone. He can definitely tell something's up with Micah and the conversation is literally just, hey, don't, wasn't, good. (laughs) Which I really like that they're getting that shorthand. Like, he can tell when she's upset. He's letting her know that he is available, but he also knows she doesn't like to be pushed, so he drops it. That's exactly what I wrote down. Pete makes himself available. And that is the best thing that any friend can do is, especially if you are the sort of Micah personality that might not want to talk about it, but knowing that your empathetic friend is there is helpful. And then he does mention in the coffee shop if my dad was still alive, right? Like, Yeah, he does. But he drops it right away. I don't like where he's going with it. And I think it's a common thing that, like, people with really good families say to people who don't have them, like, Mm. you know, you should give this person a chance. They're your blood. They're whatever. I am not a fan of that strategy. If it's a small thing, yeah, get over it, move on. Like, But the way Micah is talking about it makes it seem like it's not an incident. It's It's a lifestyle that makes her uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, so I had this same reaction, too, where I was like, Pete is really respectful at first, and then he he does just give it one little try, um, which is obviously coming from a good place. Yeah. But here's my apology for his try to talk to her, which is that it is sort of a guilt trip thing because she knows his dad has passed away, but he doesn't say... Uh, well, you should do this. He says, I would do this, yes. right? The, the famous I statements uh, in conflict resolution. I think that at least he doesn't start telling her what, what she do. should do. He just says, if it was me, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes it a little, a little softer. Yeah. He was testing the waters and I, and I get it. Um, and he really expertly changes the topic which I really like. He reveals that they're now able to get back on the case. And he goes, let's strike while the butt is hot. And like, Micah laughs. And I really like that. But do you know what else Micah does? What? Micah does like a Oh yeah, she does the butt slap thing. And I love it. I love it so much. Like this is the relationship that they have that like, I I feel like we were like really anxious to get to this point because it's so good and it's so easy. And it's not sexualized at all. There's not a thing in this series, I think with a lot of like sci-fi shows and cop dramas and medical dramas, it's like we have two very pretty people in the lead. Let's make them kiss. <laughs> but like this is just a really great fun partnership, which is something you don't see a lot. And I really Definitely. I really appreciate it. Uh that gets us to back in the warehouse with okay. <laughs> I wrote the crazed Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme, Artie. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if you don't know what we're talking about, it's really easy to look up. There's um, a pretty famous screenshot of a character uh, with the red yarn connecting disconnected thoughts together with wild hair. That's sort of the state Artie is at. And he's just trying to figure out who hacked the warehouse. And it's a lot. And now we are in the conference room at the Chicago FBI headquarters where Pete is making, and I wrote, a diorama. (laughs) Yes, but here's what I love. I called it a 3D model, but yes, it's a diorama. (laughs) And it's really cute. It's It's like little stick, like gingerbread figures. Um, Really quick, like we mentioned at the top of the show, we love hearing from fans of Warehouse 13 if we missed something or if you understood something that we didn't. And I got 
a awesome tip from my friend Jeshua during this FBI scene, which is that we said in our pilot that I did not think Obama was the president. Jill wanted to carry that dream a little longer. But it turns out that the federal office building has a picture of Obama in the background. So thank you for pointing that out to us. I guess we can rest at ease that this is really Obama's 2009. So back to Pete's little figures. What I wrote is that this way of thinking that Pete is like hands on and he can move through space and see with like kind of objective vision, that is way better, I think, development than the attempts in the pilot to be like, I do logistics and I look so cool and smart. Like, yes, here he's actually doing a thing that shows he is skilled and good at his job. He does two things that show he's skilled and good at his job and very smart. First of all, this is a great way for them to carry forward what was said in the pilot. Like, I'm good at logistics is a non-sentence. Like, yes, (laughs) this is like him showing, oh, this is what they meant. I'm good at actually figuring out the specifics of a situation. Okay. But he also, he's just talking with Bonnie and she says, tell me something I don't know. It was something about the case. And he just like spouts out a fact about Mary Queen of Scots. It's clearly something he learned at the warehouse. Yes. It's like, well, Mary Queen of Scots croquet mallet was made out of a narwhal horn or whatever. And it's like he, in some off-screen moment, was walking through the warehouse because we know he plays with the ping pong mirror. And he he is like, oh, Mary Queen of Scots croquet mallet. That's cool. And then he remembers it. Yes. And like actually is, is tucking away information about his new job, which is great. Which I love, but also furthers what I said about the pilot, where it makes me very nervous for his future, because that's the kind of thing Artie does. Can I say something? Yes. Because I want to be really smart for a minute. You're always very smart, but continue. Not really a spoiler. The mirror that he was playing with earlier, eventually we find out, belonged to Lewis Carroll. And in Alice in Wonderland, croquet is that big chapter with the croquet mallets that are made from flamingos and stuff. So I feel like this is a literary reference. I agree. It's incredibly smart, and I did not make that connection. So that takes us to a phone call with Artie and Micah, and he is rankled. He's so rankled, he says rankled a lot. And he says, your old contacts are off limits for security purposes. But really, he's jealous. He wants to be the favorite boss. And there's a little, little tidbit that a user during our live watch on our chat room named Blue, I believe, pointed out to me, he's just kind of techno-babbling about a previous artifact case. And he says, I had a case once of pollen from a prehistoric plant. If you are neither aware of Star Trek nor fan fiction, this is going to sound real crazy, but (laughs) this is a sex pollen reference. (laughs) So there's an episode of Star Trek, the original series. It's at the end of season one, and it's called This Side of Paradise. And it's about these... Uh, like prehistoric plants that release this pollen that makes everyone horny. Um, <laughs> and it's really weird in the show. And then in in a trope of like sexy fan fiction, sometimes if you need an ex- excuse for your fan fiction ship to like start having sex, the excuse is the sex pollen. That's awesome. And I believe the writers would know that too. Oh yeah. Like it is not an accidental reference. It's like, it's like an Easter egg. I love it. So after this kind of phone call and and discussion with Artie, 
Pete and Micah go to interview Laura. Yes, and it's revealed that they need to interview her because they have a recording from the phone that we zoomed in on earlier, and they were able to sort of get the message that was left with the sound. Uh, Because apparently everyone who was there is really unhelpful because they were missing their memory. Right. And this is, there's really good acting, like you said, from Trisha Helfer, who is not just a pretty face, Mm -hmm. but acts well with her face because she comes in during this interview and Pete and Micah are saying, we have audio from the bank robbery. And this like micro expression that she makes says, what? You didn't tell me about that. You know, like, yes, you secret service agents got something that the FBI doesn't have. And it's like, all in her face. It's not verbal, but she makes it obvious how she feels or or how her character feels, I mean. Yes. So they decide to play this for Laura. And again, we can see Pete being really nice uh, and really supportive and like emotionally sensitive, which I love about him, to this woman who clearly went through a traumatic event. What I noticed about uh, Laura is that she starts to kind of gloss over almost before they even play it. Like she gets happy. Like Artie says later, she has heard the sound before. And so the idea of hearing it again, it's like this crazy psychological memory thing that's happening. And then they do play it and she blisses out and it gets really euphoric and forgetful. That's a really good thing to notice. That's very smart. I was just going to say, it's it's actually Agent Belsky who says, turn it off, you know, because yeah. Laura's getting really into the zone. Yes. I want to say something, it might not make the final cut, but Trisha Helfer in this very auditory themed episode is a great choice because of how big of a role the music plays in Battlestar Galactica. You're so smart! So I don't want to, like, this is not a Battlestar Galactica podcast, but, like, two things the long and short of. One, isn't the music by Bear McCreary? Yes. Who is a god? God! (laughs) Bear McCreary does the music for Battlestar and also for Outlander, and, like, his music will blow your mind with its, like, depth and beauty. They actually, I just have to say, they have actual symphonies of the songs in Battlestar Galactica like you can go to a concert because it is so beautiful and symphonic it's not just background to something else that's more important it's a character in itself yes and so this is what I was gonna say with Trisha Helfer is that she plays the Cylon 6 and her theme in Battlestar is the sense of six A really quick fact check from post-production, the composer for the Battlestar soundtrack is, of course, Bear McCreary, but the particular credit for the leitmotif, The Sense of Six, actually goes to Richard Gibbs. So, thank you, Richard. This is a beautiful piece. You told me this, Jill. I'm so anxious just thinking about it. You're the one who knows the fact. The (laughs) fact is, the I'm not a musician, the rhythm of the notes is deliberately written to cause psychological anxiety yeah and whenever you hear her coming it causes you to feel a bit anxious to the point where and i actually wrote this down i remembered the fact but didn't connect it to this episode like you did literally whenever i saw trisha helfer entering a scene in this episode i got a little nervous because the song Mm -hmm. i think would play in my head a little bit and i don't know if it was just me or not but it is something i noticed and i was like it's not that she's not doing a good job acting. Like, it's not that I can't separate the actor from the character. It's something else, which I think really plays into the idea of limbic triggers in this episode. I was going to say, right, it's a Pavlovian... Like Pavlov's dogs going back to the, the name Bell in Belsky again. You have associated the, these things, and um, 
I don't want to be reaching, but I do think, like you said, Battlestar was huge on the Sci-Fi Network before Warehouse 13 ever came out, and so your overlap of viewers is going to be huge. Yeah, and this is also like the next era because Battlestar Galactica, as of like that year, was no longer on the network. So they want to, I mean, and Battlestar Galactica brought in so many viewers for Sci-Fi Network. So to have Trisha Helfer appear on the next episode is a way to have those viewers keep coming in. This is the new era of sci-fi on our channel. Please tune in. I get it. I think you're definitely right there. So they play the song and I have an awful joke. It's not a joke. It's an awful close reading that Pete says, oh, it sounds like my dad's favorite song. And my brain went, why? Because he's dead. (laughs) What? Well, because it sounds like heavenly harps. Like, it doesn't sound like music. It sounds like the background you would play in heaven. (laughs) I don't know. That's not how I ever have thought about heaven. Maybe that's just a difference of like... I don't know. But I do understand what you mean about, like, the harps and, like, that kind of thing being associated with it. But it it ends up being that it literally was just... Was his dad's his favorite His dad's song. favorite musician. I thought it was a little convenient that Pete recognized it. But, like, I'll allow it. I think the episode works, and so I'm like, okay, sure... We need to propel forward to the artifact, and thus we quickly find out whose music it is. Yeah, and she, we. I also just want to note that Laura, when she was crying, and the reason that Belsky wanted her to turn it off was because she was crying. So when she was no longer sort of enthralled by the sound, they asked her, like, what was wrong? What was she feeling? And she said she felt love. Aww. So the last thing in this scene is that Artie pulls up on his computer that the song is in fact by Pete's dad's favorite, Eric Marsden. So this is not a real person, but it works really well. We don't need it to be a real musician. It's just a music-y thing. I think it works better if it's not too. Yeah, there is something that I think makes, again, helps me suspend my disbelief with Pete magically knowing the artist, which is that... Artie gives us some techno babble about kind of like musical signatures or something. And he's like, that's what makes the Beatles sound like Beatles and Copeland sound Mm -hmm. like Copeland. So I have some notes about this, but this is, there is no right or wrong answer. Do you know who Copeland is? I thought he was a composer. Well, I didn't look it up. Is he a composer? (laughs) Because I, to me, Copeland is an American rock band. Uh, Aaron Copeland was an American composer. But Copeland is a band, but also maybe the writers just were throwing in a fun fact about their favorite band. Uh, We're back in the warehouse with Artie, and he's talking with Lena, and I want to note two things about that. One, they're both wearing purple again, and we're at a greater level of comfort with them. So, like, as of right now, the purple equals safety thing tracks for me. I don't know if it will continue in that vein, but as of right now, it's still working. And Artie thinks he's found the source of the hack and it's in DC. But also, like, Lena was just not there before in the warehouse. She was away. I think you are not wrong to be on the watch. (laughs) (laughs) So they go to the house and I'm really interested to hear what you, you have to say about this because it turns out that Eric Marsden has a whole list of medical problems. He's bipolar, he's clinically depressed, and he recently found out he has liver cancer. And he's semi-catatonic, which is awful in its own way. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Yes, you do. From the episode of Buffy, uh, Spiral. Oh, when you get frozen? 
Yeah, when you just are so locked into your own thoughts that you're in your head. Oh, you, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh. I know. So, like, when he's staring off at the wall, I'm just like, oh, bud. Yeah. And so we talked about this in our most recent previous episode, the second half of the pilot, where there is a theme of mental illness, not just throughout individual episodes, but in Warehouse 13, it's almost that kind of like well-known but questionable correlation between like genius and creativity and being ahead of your time for Eric Marsden being a mind-blowing artist being a really experimental composer is linked with uh you know mental illness and suffering which like I don't want to be true but I do think historically we know a lot of great minds have struggled with that I agree well and I think that that's important that the over combining of lots of really really difficult diagnoses is for the purpose of making him difficult to get through to. And also, though, because we know by the end of the episode that the caretaker, I forget her name, is involved in the heists and stuff. So maybe when she is, because she is using a tone of voice to describe his diagnosis that's, like, really flippant. Yeah. But then... When it turns out that maybe she was just trying to get the Secret Service agents to go away because she didn't want to be caught, then I'm like, okay, that was a front. You really love and care about this old man, and you were you were acting. Yeah. So she also, the caretaker, says, all right, you can talk to him, but it has to be you, Micah. You have a beautiful timber. Pete, you don't. Something like that. And I love it. Yes. And I just, I think it's really sweet and allows Micah to take the lead again. The show really isn't afraid of like, literally, and in this episode, several examples, and I will point them out, of having her be the muscle and the heavy lifter in a lot of ways. Um, She also, when introducing them, she says, someone once told me I have the voice of a barmaid, which is a hilarious thing to say, and I can't even begin to fathom what that means. (laughs) I mean, I can fathom the voice of a barmaid, right? If you work in a bar and you're like, I got a beer over here, you know? Right? But who would say that to, to Micah? No, no. He, we actually, we find out. Pete says, hey, did your dad say you have the voice of a barmaid? And like, she's like, don't. She like shuts it down again. And then what really sticks out to me next is that they begin talking to Eric Marsden And the background music kind of chimes in. And if you paid attention to the artifact music, we can tell. And I'm not trained in music theory, but I do love music. What I hear is it's like, oh, this background music is about to mesh with the actual music from the artifact. It's so satisfying to hear, oh, that's obviously going to be the other half of the song. And it comes in from the background music. And, and Pete playing the piano. Yeah, so then eventually Pete plays plays the notes and they melt into the, it's like, you can tell me if this is wrong, but it's like the diegetic sound melts into the actual like background sound. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I didn't even notice that. It's really nice. I think that talking about the music brings me to my almost actor spotlight. So Jill did Trisha Helper, and I am going to talk about the Warehouse 13 composer, 
Edward Rogers. So he is an LA-based composer for film and television. There's a lot of great details uh, that could be a coincidence but could not. So he went to Dartmouth, which reminds me of Pete's hoodie. So it's like, oh, if Edward Rogers, which he is, is the entire series composer and is a critical part of the show, it's sort of like people are just choosing things that they actually know. And so you may also know Edward Rogers' work from NYPD Blue, uh, which he was nominated for many awards for his original composition for that. Uh, He did Alphas, which I believe is another sci-fi show. He's well known for something more recent called Bloodline, which I haven't seen. Yes, that's a Netflix show. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, And then importantly, he was nominated for a primetime Emmy for the Warehouse 13 Outstanding Original Main Title Theme Music, which is, is just so cool. So I feel like most good shows do this. Oh, yeah. But I love when there is original composition for the show. And like we were talking about with Trisha Helfer and Bear McCreary, it's like the characters have their own themes. In Warehouse 13, when you're kind of like, even in the very first few episodes, that do-do-do, it it comes in in these little, little riffs. And you're aware that that is the song of the warehouse. And it just... Not in an overwhelming or cheesy way either. Like, they did a really smart thing of having a theme that you could take pieces of and integrate. And it gives you, like, the just the feeling of those notes is so expansive. It makes you feel like it's leading you somewhere. Well, right. And that's what is so obvious to me with Edward Rogers as a composer is that There's just so much space within his music. So to move through my spotlight, yeah, the notes all combine in a beautiful way. At the end of the episode, I'll mention um, a couple of other movements in the song. But there's something really funny at the end of this where Pete, in order for this scene to be as beautiful as it is, plays the piano to bring those sounds together. And I don't remember, I've seen the show a thousand times, but I don't know if he plays the piano again. But I love the explanation he gives, which is that he had a crush on his piano teacher. Yes. So if it was like, oh, this kind of goofy guy is secretly also a genius and a composer, like, I wouldn't believe that. But if he is just really good at a couple of piano skills because he had a crush on his teacher. I believe that. Totally. And also just a shout out to the composer on like, what is being asked of him for this episode of like create a piece of music that can reasonably elicit this level of emotion right so that's the end of my spotlight um and whatever we're on to next beautifully done so that brings me to the next thing i have not seen the movie the great santini but micah describes her childhood when pete presses a little more she says have you seen the movie the great santini with the scared kids and the tough dad that was my life but it wasn't over in two hours like that's awful like if she described her primary childhood emotion as scared of a tough figure that's not okay no and this goes to what you said in our uh episode two as well the vulnerability that joanne kelly displays when she says it wasn't over in two hours my heart that is good acting and like other other emotions are not her strong suit but this emotion is and it's really really effective 
But no, I completely agree. And then that takes us out on the fancy new outro cards, which we really didn't get before because we went out on the title sequence before. And so this goes out on a Farnsworth click, which I really enjoyed. I really like that they took the time to design those elements. Yes, absolutely. So the agents are all continuing their work on this case. Pete is working with Agent Belsky. Micah has another phone call where now her mom says that her dad canceled. And then, so they go into the record shop and they learn a bit more about this Marsden guy and a song that he may have created. And we find out it was part of this really experimental thing that wasn't released. He sort of stopped making marketable stuff so it never got sold. Someone is trying to buy a lot of his old stuff. There's an offer on the table for it. And Pete, ever the clumsy dude, (laughs) breaks a record. And just like Micah glares at him, which I thought was good and like a good thing there. And then actually I wanted to stay in this place because something very interesting happens. I said before the show mythology is really open and that's what makes it appealing. This is the first time we're getting insight somewhat into the creation of an artifact. Mm-hmm. This is a very modern thing that was created. It, it is an artifact because it will become an artifact in the future. It is not currently like a super old ancient artifact or a piece of history in a huge way, but we get to see something that is created and that is important enough. And I think that's really interesting because you're not just pulling from the deep past, you're pulling from the recent past. Yes. I'm so glad you pointed that out because it hadn't occurred to me. But yeah, like the Aztecs and Lucrecia Borgia versus a guy from the 60s, like totally. Yeah, and someone who's still alive. And and the thing is, you can see how much pain Marsden was in and how much of himself, like it was like when they took away his ability to make and produce that music, they took away his happiness. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like that is implied is what like, his happiness went into the artifact and then it made other people feel loved. And I just think that is a very interesting, beautiful thing to introduce into your mythology in such an interesting way. I didn't read that. That was so smart. Oh my gosh. So he lost, yeah, he lost his his love and happiness because he put it into his music. Yeah. I had just thought because, again, the Mr. Canning record man says that he was searching for this kind of magically powerful sound. And so my more surface level reading was that he found it. But then that wouldn't explain why. The search itself, I think, and like the joy that he had in it is what made the artifact the thing. We are not told, but that's a great way of putting the pieces together. Thank you. So now we're actually back in the coffee shop. Micah is in the coffee shop. Pete isn't. Pete is... No, Pete is with her. Sorry. Um, but he gets a call from Belsky in the conference room at the headquarters. It's like, I'm here with some agents who want to take away your scissor privileges. Which was so funny. I really like that. And she says, like, really interesting, very helpful things. And, oh yeah, Pete asks if he can go hang out with Belsky and, like, do some stuff. Which I thought was so cute, but it was like basically like asking her permission to flirt and she goes go play footsie with the fbi um which was just a really funny thing to say yes so after that Artie goes into dickinson's office because remember he's been doing his always sunny wire <laughs> thing um, to figure out where he got hacked from and this is his conclusion and it's so amazing how the scene with dickinson plays out because Dickinson comes in and is like, who the? And then Artie snaps a photo 
and this Kodak moment. Um, that was so cool. Artifact does this incredible thing where we will, I think, freely admit that sometimes the effects are not good. But this effect is great. It's so funny. Like, it was good and funny, yeah. but not comically bad. It was just comical. It makes Dickinson into essentially like a cardboard cutout. Yeah, it turns him black and white, but it also makes him flat. Yeah! <laughs> this is what's so genius, is that it's an artifact that freezes a person. Nice, convenient, no explanation needed, done. But mm-hmm. the little tiny choice of like, well, if it's a Kodak moment, a photo is two-dimensional. <laughs> yes. So you're going to be black and white and two dimensions, which is, it's perfect, it's funny, and it, it does the job that allows Artie to break out another artifact, um, which is a retrofuturistic device that looks like a sort of series of dials, but it's also fitted with a USB plug. So what we have seen so far with Artie and his computer aesthetic, which makes perfect sense because we don't get the idea that Artie is actually like 21st century good at computers. He has like artifacty computers that allow him to do abnormal Warehouse 13 things. And a lot of them use this, like I said, like a retro future looking technology, just like the aesthetic of the Farnsworth and the aesthetic of the Tesla. Like retro future just means like either the way that people in the past would imagine the future or the way that people in the future some scholars call it a false nostalgia, like a nostalgia for a past that didn't exist. But this is where I want to do something a little fun and special for this episode, Artifact Expert. I wanted to talk about steampunk because it is featured in some of these technologies that we keep seeing. And it's a huge part and gets only huger in this show. So our Artifact Expert for today is Valjean Jeffers. She is an author of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and erotica. Her work was recently included in 100 plus Black Women in Horror, and she has appeared in numerous anthologies, including most recently, Fitting In, Sycorax's Daughters, which was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, and Black Magic Women and Luminescent Threads, which was the winner of the 2018 Locus Award for Nonfiction. She's a graduate of Spelman College and a member of the Carolina African American Writers Collective, C-A-A-W-C. When we talk about steampunk, we tend to get a really white Western view of the past, and it's almost just a nostalgia for a colonial history that, you know, steampunk is fun and not malicious on principle, but can erase people. Steampunk started as a fantasy genre based on the Victorian era, but with a lot of science fiction elements, you know, like you'll see a steampunk computer and the guns with all the accoutrements. Um, What has happened after steampunk was invented Authors of color, um, and you know, and I'm, I'm an African American woman, noticed that there were very few characters of color in the genre that that authors weren't writing about um, the African American experience or including it in in their stories, and they weren't including any other writers or any other characters of color. So 
what happened was they created steampunk. Someone else coined the term steampunk. But the first steampunk anthology that I know of was entitled Steampunk, and it was uh, co-edited by um, Milton Davis and Belagon O.J. Tate. And now you have a whole mix. And so what it's done is it kind of took the steampunk thing of being in the Victorian era and it turned it on its head. So what you have now, which is what I've done, you have people creating worlds that really exist only in their imagination. Or they'll take, say, um, an American period, and they'll take a character like Frederick Douglass or George Washington Carver and turn them into a hero of this era. And that's what you know when they say when there is a need, someone will feel the need. And so, um, like I said, because, you know, because authors of color, they wanted to participate, but they didn't want to be, you know, pushed to the, to the, to the periphery. Um, marginalized, as I think is the word people would use. And so they started to create their own stories and their own novels. So a lot of steampunk is about H.G. Wells or Sherlock (laughs) Holmes or, you know, Lewis Carroll. And these are actually people that we are going to see featured in Warehouse 13. But what this amazing clip from Valjean says is, uh, if we can do H.G. Wells, why not do Harriet Tubman? That's important because I've always really liked Afrofuturism and it's cool to know that as a person who also likes history and history science fiction, that there's something for me in the past for that as well too. I think that's really cool. Yes, and I think this is what I wanted to show was that the purpose of our podcast as a sort of like intersectional feminist project is not to just tell you like some things you already know, but to get you excited for other things. So yeah, we're sort of our own little like warehouse like we we open the doors to other possibilities for you to learn stuff um but if you want to learn more about steampunk um this is a quote from my friend jamie go her name is j-a-y-m-e-e and then g-o-h and she is actually a southeast asian scholar of science fiction there are a lot of common motifs in steampunk jamie adds those motifs this is a quote, don't have to be married to Western interpretations of history. I want to give two shout outs based on what we've learned from my uh, interviews. First of all, Jamie's book is called The Sea is Ours, and that's like all caps SEA as in Southeast Asia. And she's just a great scholar if you want to read about like a post-colonial critique of Victorian um, steampunk She writes academic scholarship on this. Um, She has a blog called Silver Goggles. And then I'm going to insert a clip now of uh, Valjean talking about her work and also the work of some of her friends. I was fascinated by steampunk from day one. I mean, the clothing by itself, you know, I I mean, it just pulled me in. And uh, I was, was, like I said, I was very um, happy to uh, be featured in, in Steampunk and the Steampunk Anthology and what that did. Once I wrote the Switch to Clockwork, I couldn't stop, and I had to create more, so that's where I came up with Mona Livelong. That's the detective who lives in this fantasy Well, It's a fantasy world that I created. That's kind of a mashup of New Orleans and maybe another city like San Francisco based in, in Steam. It's based in the Steampunk world. And, and while we're at it, I have to give a shout-out to my fellow author and cover artist, um, Quentin Veal, who's helped me bring a lot of this to life with his art. And uh, some of his erotica is uh, speculative fiction. 
um, recently we did a um, anthology together. Um, that is actually the second one, Cyrogenous, Cyrogenous One, Cyrogenous Two, where we have stories from, and some of the stories are steampunk. Another author I would recommend um, would be, of course, Milton Davis. He's our fearless leader when it comes to steampunk. <laughs> and Belagon Ojete um, is another author that um, that I greatly admire. And the last name is spelled O J is in Jacob, E is in Edward. T-A-D-E. And because this is a TV show and I interviewed an author, she also has two recommendations for films. One is already in production and you can see the trailer on YouTube. And then the second is a project that she and some fellow female writers of color are working on getting off the ground. I know Milton and Bella are going to working on a film, The Rites of Passage. There's a movie that a lady is working on. She's been trying to produce it. She brought a lot of us together, all female writers, called The Seven uh, Seven Magpies. And what it is, it's a, um, a horror fantasy anthology. Valjean was just so cool. Uh, check her out. Her website is V Jeffers. That's V as in Valentine. Jeffers, J-E-F-F-E-R-S. And, all spelled out A-N-D, Q, as in Quentin, veal, V-E-A-L, dot com. So you can learn more about both of their steam funk works and other speculative fiction pieces on that site. Um, yeah, any time that we celebrate the more predictable steampunk elements, we can also think like of having a broader perspective and being more inclusive as well. I agree, and I think that's really smart and something we should definitely think about going forward. Speaking of going forward, let us go forward. So this is the coffee shop scene that I was anticipating. Micah is on the phone in the coffee shop uh, with another guilt-tripping mom phone call. Like, I don't think she's calling her mom. I think her mom is calling her, just to be very clear. And we learn that her father is canceling the party because she's not coming, and she's like, too bad. The shuffling in the background is my dog. I'm very sorry. When she hangs up, that's when we have another loud noise. And a server drops a tray, but she looks back and it sort of goes into flashback mode. And you see a book dropping. And to me, that was a limbic trigger for her. Like of a book dropping in her dad's bookstore. Oh, and. But- her being very jumpy about it. And I think that's why she was also jumpy in the first scene. It's like, that's a very specific sound that meant something bad was happening when she was a kid. And this would be the third one because Pete dropped the record. Yes. And it and made, she doesn't like it. Yeah, it made her react similarly. But you're absolutely right. It is, it's, oh, it's a limbic trigger for her. Jill, you're so smart. Thank you. But it just, it made me sad. Like, that's not, when you think back on your history, like every time you talk to your mom about your father, and then hear a loud noise, it shouldn't bring you back to that place, but every time it does for her. Yeah. And it, I find that really upsetting, and it really, in the same way that in the first episode, learning about Pete's addiction was really a, a profound moment for mm-hmm. us, I feel like this is also a profound moment for us, because it gives insight into, you know, one of the reasons she notices so many things. Like, why did she have to notice so many things? Where did that instinct come from? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Then we see her call Artie. Micah, through the dropping of the things which she hates, 
has figured out that it is acoustics that matter. And so the bank that gets robbed next is going to be one with great acoustics. Um, and then we have our next commercial black, which this time goes out not on the Farnsworth, but on the closing of a box, which I like that we switch it up. Sure. No, they're great. And it's it was really fun when this show was on to get a box like shoop, shoop, shoop. And then all of a sudden it's like a commercial for Crest White Strips. Like those were really fun. But I love that you can still see them like on DVD or online when you're watching. Like those are your act commercial breaks. Yeah, I really like it too because when you go out on the Farnsworth, it makes you feel like a member of the team. And when you go out on the box, it makes you feel like the show itself is an artifact. Like they're just boxing it up for you. You can come back to it later, which I just really like. So when we're back from commercial break, Belsky and Pete are in the car, and she says something like, doesn't it bother you what happened in Denver? Okay, a few things I want to say. One, we reveal that Micah was having an affair with her boss. Which I feel like we knew. We knew that-ish. We knew that, but she says, and he was married, separated, but still. Okay, hold on. Yeah, separated is not married. Yes. Like, if you, and just, you know, people get divorced. I know many people who are divorced. Divorce legally takes a really long time. Yes. Um, so if you are separated, then you're, like, you might, like, have the piece of paper that says you're married, but you are not cheating on your wife if you're separated. Yeah. I'm sorry. I agree. That judgment on Belsky's part, I found her whole her whole attitude in that scene really I found incredibly off-putting. Like you don't get someone in a car and then start talking their partner. Beyond just being a crappy thing to do to your friends, but also like this isn't a normal friendship. These kind of law enforcement partnerships are to help save lives. You need to be able to rely on each other and not doubt each other and she as a law enforcement professional should know that. And good for Pete for being like, no, I do trust her. But I just, there is something else Pete does that's incredibly lovable. When Artie calls, Artie calls and like sort of explains, like he starts doing his techno babble as he does. It's like, so we figure out the blah, 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 blah. Pete immediately, and this isn't his vibe. This is just him being a good partner and friend, interrupts Artie, knows what that kind of frantic speaking means and just says, where is she? And then the thing I want to point out is that right after that scene, that's where we see Micah go into action to apprehend the criminals. And she gets to the right place while the crime is in progress. Um, She is smart. She's a good officer. And then she is in a fight. She is on top in the fight. She is... She's so cool. She's the muscle. She's the brains and the muscle. She figured out the problem and she took down bad guys. I just love her. And then when... So um, what's her name? When Belsky and Pete pull up, Micah has already diffused the situation. And yes, some of the guys got away, but it was like three on one. So that's fair. And then as soon as Belsky comes up, Micah has, she's like, it was a gray van with the bald left tire, whatever info. It's like, you are an incredible law enforcement officer. Yes. Like you were aware of the entire um, scene of all of the surroundings and environment, as well as the criminals and your like fist fight with them. Yes. And like you have already mentioned, she had already solved the crime too, because she's like, 
she does the Scooby-Doo. She's like, allow me to introduce the sound recorder. <laughs> um, and she pulls off the mask. And you're like, Micah, like, yes, it's awesome and perfect that Pete shows up on scene. But Micah was, she was on it. And yes. so any of those doubts that Belsky put in your mind in the previous car scene is like, no, we should never doubt Micah. And then the last part of this scene is that Micah says, one of them was a woman. And Pete says, well, how'd you know? I felt her. And then he's like, did you touch your boobies? <laughs> Which was so great. I just love that. It's also true, right? So yeah. like, literally, it's not like he's making a sex joke. It's like, no, Micah was fighting a woman and like punched her in the chest, you know? Yeah. So it's not as vulgar because it's actually just verbalizing in a silly way what actually happened. Yeah. My next note is that we go to Dickinson's office. Artie unfreezes Dickinson, who finishes his sentence. Yes, that's why it's so good. It's so good. Um, And then he's like, wait, it's a much different time of day. You're not where you were a second. (laughs) You can see he's very disoriented, and I loved it. Artie immediately gets to, like, his dark place and is like, who I am isn't important. It's who I represent. You know who I am. And he's like, how's the Tesla? And he's like, don't shoot me or whatever you're going to do with that thing. (laughs) And he, like, makes a joke about him being, like, Flash Gordon. And I'm like, ah, Dickinson's got jokes. I I just like the vibe, like the friendly, playful vibe of Dickinson. Because it's so unlike Artie. It's not tortured and troubled in any way. Hmm. It's just like, this is freaking weird, man. Which I really enjoyed. And it makes me really like him. It's not like, oh, this old boss can't go away. It's like, oh, man, I, I like this guy. I wish he could stick around a little bit sort of thing. He is a great guy. And he is starring in his own show. Just not this show. Like, he's a great leading character of, like, whatever crime drama he thinks he's a part of. But he's not, like... Well, that's actually uh, an amazing segue into just, like, I was curious about some of the reviews of this episode. And what a lot of people said were, like, this is acting like a procedural, but it's not a procedural. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly how this feels. It's, like, because of Dickinson's presence and that sort of subplot, it's, like... We are in the law offices, and I guess it's not just Dick- there's Dickinson, there's the FBI, there's Trisha Helfer's character, so it feels like a police procedural when in reality it's a sci-fi show, and the balance is slightly more on the side of law enforcement this time when most episodes are going to be more on the side of sci-fi. Yeah, and like we can't forget ever that Pete and Micah are federal officers, and technically, for whatever reason, the warehouse is a government branch. Like, of some kind. Heavy themes. So, they definitely go there. But it's definitely, like, funny to me. Because it doesn't feel like this is a procedural episode. It feels like Warehouse 13 invaded a procedural show. And that's when we learn that uh, Dickinson did not hack Artie. He goes, I got hacked. You got punked. I didn't hack you. Which is a good reveal and also a very 2009 reference. I think punked was more like a 2004 thing. And so, of course, the kind of old dad Dickinson makes yes. a punked joke. Yes. Like, it is layers of pop of culture history. Yeah, yeah, of old guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go forward a bit. Pete is with Micah, and he feels really guilty about leaving her alone to go hang out with the hot other agent, mm-hmm. which I wrote, he should feel guilty 
But I do also like that his, like, major flirtation with Belsky is over. Like, he was very put off by her behavior in the car, which is a huge credit to him, I think. Sure. Yeah, I didn't even realize, but yeah. Yeah. I wrote, Micah graciously doesn't care that he left her alone because she's like, she did give permission. And she is capable of handling herself. Clearly. And then when they take the dude in, Pete, I wrote, vibe alert. And he tells her to put in her earplugs, which I love that she is so quickly, so far past questioning his vibes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then the slow-mo thing happens again. And also it makes wind. Yes. Well, no. So this is, yes. Whew. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> we've seen the slow-mo effect a few times, but what we see, which I love from a writing perspective, because when it is the like third person objective view, either in the very first cold open or through the film, because um, the bank film is literally a third person objective, right? You don't see the wind. But when our main characters are actually there, you see these ripple effects coming out of the speakers. And so what I think is, in my opinion, what this does is it shows the physicality of the sound. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a musician or a scientist or pretty much anything related to sound, you know that sound actually produces waves and sound actually like enters spaces and it goes into your ears and it like in a true way but also a great sci-fi way it like comes into your body and is processed by your body and so that yeah it's a sci-fi artifact but that process of getting literally affected and being personally affected by the sound I think we're getting here's the real reveal that there is something physiologically happening in the body, which our technobabble limbic system explanation gives us about the euphoria caused by this music. So I think it's genius. And again, some people might find it cheesy, but to me, I thought it was really smart. And plus we get to see Trisha Helfer's hair blowing in the wind. So whoever <laughs> complained about that. <laughs> yes, I really, I agree. That was really smart and I really enjoyed it. Now, here's the interesting thing. The robbers take Jed and Micah, it appears she's trying to stop them, but she's not. She has tried to take on all three of them alone before. Mm -hmm. She knows that they are just a bit too much of a match for her. So she drops her cell phone in their pockets, which is so smart. Instead of like trying to do the thing that already didn't work, she's already thought ahead and made a different strategy. Yes. I love that. She's a good law enforcement officer. And those jerks who sexistly judged her for dating uh, within the workforce, dating a separated man, heaven forbid, were wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And then we go out for our next commercial break. This one is on the Farnsworth, I believe. All right. And now we're back. And we're in Dickinson's office. And it's sweet because... Artie and Dickinson are working together, and Dickinson's so nice about it. Like They're broing out. Right? And it's like, I feel really happy for Artie that he gets this sort of connection. Mm-hmm. Because even when Pete and Micah are on a case, he's still basically alone in the warehouse. So video calls aren't a thing yet, so he has to hide the Farnsworth. Ha <laughs> ha! 
This guy broke into Dickinson's office, and Dickinson is a law enforcement officer, but he does recognize, for whatever reason, that Artie is also a law enforcement officer. Well, he went through all of that paperwork with Mrs. Frederick in the pilot, like, realizing that she had a higher clearance than him. Yeah. And so I think there might actually be, like, a secret respect. Yeah. Because technically, like we learned, Dickinson has, like, lower credentials than this top secret Warehouse 13 thing. Yeah. And he's, I mean, if he's running branches of the Secret Service, he's got really high clearance. So that's a high level of respect to have. So I do like that he averts his eyes, but he's like, okay, it's my office. I'll avert my eyes, whatever. And (laughs) Well, we get the idea that Dickinson wants to see this new technology and know more about Warehouse 13. But he's also, like, respectful enough. Yeah. To not push it too far. And (laughs) Micah just says, Artie, find my phone. He goes, I'm not your personal cell phone finder. Because he had to find another phone earlier to track the call. And she's like, no, no, no. No, that's not why. But I feel like he's sort of pleased that he's like, I'm with my friend. Don't call me right now. I'm not going to find your (laughs) cell phone. Like, he's just having a little bit of actual human contact, which I really enjoy. That's awesome. Yeah. But then she explains what she did. (laughs) and what happened and we just see in the background like i'm fine everyone's fine they're still a little affected by what happened and you just see belsky and pete in the background giggling with like small pieces of paper and like hitting each other is that what they were doing i thought he was giving her his phone number but it also doesn't look like a. it's not like a, a good exchange of anything no they're just giggly and like play slapping a little bit (laughs) and you know what this leads to which is perfect is that eventually this is where pete six sits down next to micah and says "Ooh, i like your perfume which is great because if you're slightly intoxicated by the euphoria of this of course a good smelling woman is gonna like make you giddy and you're gonna be like oh i like your perfume but thematically again we're thinking about sensory experience so we had the the hearing back in the in the back when Pete and Belsky are playing with their papers they're like touching and playing mm-hmm. and now he's going to come smell and it's like oh just you know you're intoxicated by your physical embodiment this ef- effect of the artifact has made you euphoric in all of those ways also i know that Smell is strongly tied to memory. Yes. But I love that, again, this observation shows how in tune Pete is because he immediately is like, that's the receptionist perfume. And he snaps out of his trance, too. You can see him sort of sober up. Then, as we move on, Artie found the cell, and it is in Marsden's house, and Pete and Micah show up and find out that the caretaker is is the third person in this. And so as we reveal what's going on, there is exposition and an explanation that the daughter had been robbing the banks to get the money to buy the original recordings from the kind of corrupt record agent guy. And the daughter is the receptionist, which is why she was helping to rob the bank. We see that visually. <laughs> In this yes. scene. We see, right, we see that the people who have been robbing the banks are the receptionist, who is actually Marsden's daughter, um, the caretaker, and then the sound recorder, um, who they had caught already. So it was, they say, at least twice, it was never about the money. Mm-hmm. 
And this is the explanation that you so brilliantly gave us where Marsden had poured all of his love into that music. And then because of the like corrupt business deal that um, Mr. Canning had made, it was truly that he lost all of that work. And we get the idea because he was a artist from the 60s that it wasn't like today where you could just have a copy on your computer or you could just like digital digitize files like these were the only recordings ever made and then they were taken from him and that's ruined him emotionally and physically in his life so his sweet daughter who we did know we learned in the early exposition that he had been once married um so like it makes sense that he has a daughter but what's so awesome about this is that they said in that early exposition that his wife had left him and we get the idea that he has no one left. But in reality, he has this daughter who loves him more than anything. And that's so sweet. And she did get the stuff from the record place. So they did buy it. And Micah says, we need to be calling the FBI now. But then this goes back to something I said in the first episode where we're sort of confronted with the fact that this isn't the kind of law enforcement that that is. Yeah. It's not necessarily even about finding justice. It's about containing the danger and minimizing risk. And Pete says, this isn't our problem. We don't have to do this. And I think it's a good call because how are you going to prosecute something like this? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think that's something that they do really realistically. Um, so I said I would bring this up, but while all this exposition and explanation is happening, we get the full composition, which again, in my reading is Eric Marsden's actual thing, right? They have found it and brought it home. And this was the piece of music. And so it starts off with those original notes that Pete had played on the piano And as Pete and Micah go through that kind of tough, do we turn them in to the FBI, uh, there's a shift to a minor key. It's just a really brief movement, but it gives us that anxiety. And we're like, oh gosh, like this is beautiful, but it could be really terrible. And then when the resolution, which is both a musical term and a writing uh, term occurs, the chords resolve in this like hopeful, optimistic orchestral chord that just kind of is like really peaceful. And that's how we fade out on the family being brought back together. We see real growth from Micah where she is, you can kind of tell that she's upset about not calling the FBI, but she has, she has to know it's the right thing. Yeah. She kind of like turns her back quickly and is like, oh, like you're, you're right, Pete. I don't want you to be right, but you're right. Mm-hmm. And that's great character growth for For someone who is so by the book. And for someone who is so by the book, she can roll with the punches really well. Yeah. She can adapt really easily, and I really admire that about her. Also, the minor notes, for me, didn't cause anxiety. Maybe it's because, as a Jewish person, (laughs) there are a lot of minor chords and minor notes in Jewish prayers and songs, and it's sort of part of the way that we feel about things. It's just part of... It's like trying to tell a story about the human experience without any sort of sad history. It's like all part of it. Okay. And so for me, the inclusion of the minor notes is what made it even more beautiful. There is this darkness. There is this illness that's 
taken this father away from his child in some ways but that makes the bond that they still have so much stronger and so much more beautiful that his peak mental health wasn't the core of their relationship their love was the core of their relationship and that's an important recognition and for yeah it felt like a warm hug to me it felt that's what makes it different than a song that's all happy and bubbly that was such a good addition to my analysis it makes it yeah it makes it really well-rounded do we have anything before the final teaser with Artie's kind of shock yes one thing this was I think the one part of the episode I flat out didn't like I get I get it that seeing something like that makes you want to call your dad but like only if you have a good dad so there's a difference like you had said earlier there's a difference between having some incident like let's say your dad forgot your birthday and you're mad fine but if your dad possibly abused you don't go home yeah you like there is no reason for micah to feel bad about setting boundaries for things that make her feel safe. Mm-hmm. And that felt like very much a writer's choice, not a choice an actual human would make. But on the other hand, I will say, I, I definitely know of people, my dog is barking, I'm sorry, I can't be helped, who say things like, it's not really for that person, it's for me, so I don't have regrets when they're no longer around, which could possibly be a motivation, but... If anyone is in a similar situation and listening to this, don't worry about future regrets. Take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't put yourself in a position to be hurt. Well, right. And like, again, we do get the obvious conclusion that Micah can defend herself and protect herself. So she is not in danger anymore. But like, that doesn't make it okay to go back, especially psychologically, if it's not good for her. Yeah. Um, So that was the only part of the episode that I actually didn't like. Mm -hmm. I just, it wrapped things up neatly, but too neatly. And it didn't, it didn't need to. I would have been much happier if Micah went home to the warehouse and that was the family that she was celebrating and getting to know. Mm -hmm. That would be, yeah. Once that's done, we get a really, like you said, a really nicely tied up ending, but... There is a bit of a clue about what's coming next where we don't have any idea at the time what's happening, but Artie is under Dickinson's desk and he's fiddling with the computer stuff and he gets some sort of electric shock. But then that electric shock takes him, we don't know, maybe to a dream or like a weird mental space where someone's like yelling at him like some kind of warning. We see a man laying down in a tie. Yeah. And then what I like is there's a little bit of a pun where Artie sits up and his glasses are all askew and Dickinson says, uh, like, are you all right? And Artie says it was just a just a shock. And I think it was electric shock, but also like he has been shocked mentally by what he saw. Yeah, he knows like Artie knows what it is, but we don't know what it is. We get the idea that Artie is looking for a male person. Whether or not that is the correct person to look for, we get that idea. Yeah, and we call, he calls him Mr. Knock Knock. Oh, that's what it is, yeah. So he goes right before, he goes under there, and he's like, I'll find you, Mr. Knock Knock. Which is a hilarious thing to say. But yeah, that was a great way to put a button on the episode. Yeah, I think it was a great ending because it was 
such a clearly nicely tied up episode that you need to have something else to to like get people excited. Yeah, and it worked really well. This whole episode worked really well, which brings me to the final piece of my notes. Yay! Now, we have a very special writer's corner here today because we're not focusing on the actual writer of the episode. The writer of this episode is David Simpkins. He was involved in the creation of the pilot. We have already talked about him. What I want to talk about is the reason this episode worked so well. And that reason is named Jack Kenny. He is the showrunner of this series, which if you're not familiar with TV, a showrunner is a person who runs the show. They're in charge of the look and feel of things. They have a big hand in the writing of a show, in the decisions made around costuming, everything about the show that makes it feel cohesive and put together in a way that the pilot didn't feel. We we weren't sure what Pete's voice was and what Micah's motivations were and all these other things. The pilot was good, but it didn't have that cohesion that we would have expected. We have it now, and it's because of this wonderful executive producer. So Jack Kenny, he is a writer and a director, and one of the lovely things that I saw was one of his early writing credits was a Nickelodeon show, which was a big part of my childhood, called The Secret World Secret World of Alex Mack. I love that show! Yes! Which, if you weren't familiar or didn't have access to it, it was never one of, I think, the biggest shows, but it was an early childhood science fiction show where... <laughs> A girl could basically turn to Mercury and, like, go into places and change her shape. It reminded me of those old Capri Sun commercials, which I'm (laughs) sure we've all seen. Such a 90s thing. Yeah, and it was beautiful. And he is a really an interesting writer because he has a big spectrum, much like Trisha Helfer, in the range of things he can and has done. So he's done sci-fi. He's done shows like The Secret World of Alex Mack and other sci-fi shows. But he's also done non-sci-fi shows. He did a lot of work on a show called Caroline in the City, which was a big show in the 90s. It wasn't sci-fi at all. He is an executive producer on Jessica Jones, which is a show I love. He worked on Falling Skies. And, fun fact, he is our secret actor spotlight. <gasps> what? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. My neighbors heard that. We can actually expect to see him in an episode of Warehouse 13. In the episode Endless, he plays Jack. Oh. Um, but yes, he cameoed twice on Caroline in the City. He cameoed on Blossom, which I don't think he was actually involved in. <laughs> but he likes to leave a clear and physical mark in the shows that he is involved in, which I really appreciate. I like that he is a showrunner in that sense. Mm-hmm. I personally believe that he is responsible for the change in tone, the gender equality of Pete and Micah, and the queer friendliness and queer iconness of the show. Not in a forced way, but in a we don't have to only expect heteronormative things from the show kind of way, which is really nice and really freeing, and I really like it. I think that that was a perfect way to end the show, and uh, what a great episode for us, and yeah. Yeah, so thank you for joining us, and agents, we will see you on our next mission.
And hey, if you're still here, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends, and chat with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Warehouse13Pod, and always on our website at Warehouse13Pod.com. That's (laughs) Warehouse13Pod.com. Goodbye.